0: In 1972, the Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was being so wantonly and so freakishly imposed that it was cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. In a case generating nine separate opinions, the court, by a 5-4 vote, placed a moratorium on capital punishment across the country.
1: But just four years later, the court reversed course, ruling that with new procedures in place, states could continue executions in a constitutional manner. Justice Thurgood Marshall, the only justice to have represented a defendant in a capital case, wrote an impassioned dissent, arguing that the death penalty is cruel and unusual under any
0: circumstances. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're taking on Greg versus Georgia.
2: The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent.
3: For these reasons and others elaborated,
4: in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent.
1: America is sharply divided when it comes to the death penalty. Though public support is at its lowest of all time, more than half the population still favors it and 27 states authorize it.
0: Even in states where it's permitted, capital punishment is infrequently used. 13 states that authorize the death penalty haven't carried out an execution in the last 10 years. A death sentence in this country largely amounts to life in prison without parole, except more expensive because of the inevitable slew of appeals that follow. But what, if anything, does public
1: opinion have to do with the constitutionality of capital punishment? As always, let's start with the text. The Eighth Amendment reads, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Though it may sound straightforward, there are several different views of what the cruel and unusual punishment part requires. And we know just the guy to tell us about them.
3: I'm John Stuniford. I'm a law professor at the University of Florida.
0: The first approach comes from the jurisprudence of dist fan favorite Antonin Scalia.
3: So Justice Scalia, when he was on the court, particularly in an opinion in a case called Harmelin versus Michigan, articulated uh, his version of an originalist approach uh, to the Eighth Amendment. His basic idea was that the way you draw the line is you look to the standards of 1790, essentially. And so if a punishment practice was okay in 1790, it must be okay today because the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause means whatever was considered cruel and unusual at the time the Eighth Amendment was adopted. Justice Scalia also has rejected the notion of a punishment being cruel and unusual because it's disproportionate to the offense. So he would say a punishment um, can be cruel and unusual because it involves a barbaric method of punishment, right? So if we're putting you on the rack and torturing you, then that's cruel and unusual. Um, But a prison sentence uh, or even the death penalty would not be cruel and unusual because it's disproportionate to the offense.
0: As even Justice Scalia himself admitted, that interpretation can lead to some pretty intolerable results.
3: It is true that Justice Scalia himself, when he was first uh, on the bench as a Supreme Court justice, expressed reluctance at enforcing his own idea of what the Eighth Amendment means. And, And the basic idea was some things were acceptable in 1790. Uh, that today are way beyond what we would consider acceptable, right? So there was uh, bodily mutilation of various kinds was considered an acceptable form uh, of punishment. Um, Also, the first Congress authorized the death penalty for counterfeiting, um, whereas today we would consider that to be very disproportionate um, to the offense. And so he, when he was first on the court, he called himself a faint-hearted originalist and said, you know, I, I, this is what I think it means, but even I probably couldn't enforce it. If it came down to it, I would have to do something else. Now, later in his career, he became less faint-hearted, and he said, uh, well, no, if, if Congress tried to authorize something like that, I would say it's stupid but constitutional. The point that he made later in his career, I think, is a, is a really important point in its own way, which is that just because we don't like the result doesn't mean the result is unconstitutional. Right. People often have a hard time um, disaggregating those two ideas. That if I think it's horrible, then it must be against the Constitution. Um, but of course, different people have different ideas of what's horrible versus what's what's just. And so we need some standard um, beyond simply you know, my gut reaction to something. So Justice Scalia says, well, here's our standard. We look to basically public opinion in 1790."
1: A second approach to cruel and unusual punishment was articulated by Chief Justice Earl Warren in 1958 in a case called Trop versus Dulles. Under his view, the Eighth Amendment requires us to ask whether the challenged punishment complies with, quote, the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. As John put it,
3: in a way, the evolving standards of decency approach to the Eighth Amendment is the mirror image of Justice Scalia's approach. In fact, in a way, it's the exact same approach just applied to a different time period. So, evolving standards of decency says, we don't look to public opinion in 1790. We don't look to the standards of 1790. We look to the standards of today. So, if a punishment violates today's moral standards, then we're going to say it's cruel and unusual, even if it would have been okay in 1790. Um, Now, this this is designed in part to solve the the faint-hearted originalism problem that Justice Scalia identified. But it opens up a whole new can of worms, uh, as it were, because if you say, well, we're going to use today's moral standards to determine whether a punishment's okay, then you have to figure out, well, where, what are our standards or our criteria for determining what today's moral standards require?
0: Of course, the very fact that a death penalty statute is on the books means it has at least some support.
3: And so that would mean, in a, in a way... Uh, If the court were going to be really consistent about using the evolving standards of decency test, no punishment that's currently being imposed could ever uh, be uh, found to be cruel and unusual under today's moral standards.
1: What if we look to some other standard than just state statutes?
3: Then the question is, where do we look? Like, what's what's our source of data, right? And the court at various times has said, well, you know, maybe we'll look to public opinion of polls. Maybe we'll look at what the ABA says. Maybe we'll look at how they do things in France and Germany and other countries. And that, of course, leads back to purely subjective uh, decisions by the justices, where they're, they're basically saying, we ourselves find this abhorrent. We ourselves find this cruel and unusual. Let's look for somebody else who also thinks it's cruel and unusual.
1: There's got to be a better way. And indeed, John says there is. And better yet, he believes that third way is consistent with the original public meaning of the Constitution. According to John... Both the Scalia interpretation and the evolving standards of decency test ignore a central component of the Eighth Amendment, the word unusual.
3: Neither one could figure out what it means. And if you think about it, that sort of makes sense, because why should we care whether a punishment is rare or not, right? It would seem like if we're if we're torturing pickpockets to death, it would seem the more often we do it, the worse, right? So why should we care how rare it is? I did a fair amount of research on... on this issue and came to the conclusion that in the context of the Eighth Amendment, the word unusual does not mean rare or uncommon. It actually means contrary to long usage.
0: This interpretation relates to the idea of common law, the notion that
3: there's some things even the king can't do. There are some things even parliament or Congress in our case can't do um, because they're contrary to rights that have been established through long usage. Now, how do you get from that to the idea that unusual means contrary to long
1: usage. That brings us to the fascinating story of Titus Oates, an Englishman who lived in the late 17th century.
3: Now, Titus Oates was a disreputable Anglican clergyman. He was down on his luck. He'd had some trouble with the law you really wanted to be rich and famous. And he thought, how can I be rich and famous? Well, everybody hates Catholics. Everybody's always waiting for the Spanish Armada to come sailing up the Thames. And so if I make up a story that there's a popish plot to kill the king, then I'll be a hero because I will have saved England, right, from the Spanish invaders and from the the papal threat, he named 15 different people, including the Queen's physician he did it. as a member of the conspiracy. And he gave evidence to a magistrate uh, in London about this. But then 10 days later, the magistrate turns up dead in the city of London. And, it's, and so it's panic, right? Like the Catholics are coming. They just killed the judge with all the evidence, right? So there's a series of trials against these conspirators. And it's like trial, conviction, execution, trial, conviction, execution. Until we get to like the 15th trial, at which point Oates' story completely falls apart. It it's, turns out that he was actually in France enjoying some wine and cheese oui, oui. on the date when this key meeting of the conspirators that he supposedly attended had happened in England, and everyone kind of realized Oates has made up the whole thing. What do we do now? We've just killed 14 innocent people. What do we do with Oates?
1: The problem is... While you might think that Oates had basically engaged in murder because he deliberately brought about these people's deaths, he didn't actually kill anyone. Instead,
3: the only crime he had committed under English law at that time was perjury, perjury resulting in death, which was a misdemeanor. So Oates ends up getting tried and convicted of perjury, and then he's sentenced. And the the sentencing court uh, basically says Uh, You know, Mr. Oates, this is a misdemeanor, so we can't take your life, we can't take your limb, but we have something special planned for you. And that's almost a direct quote.
0: And boy, did the court have something special in mind. It not only imposed a massive fine, it sentenced Oates to be dragged across the city of London, all the while being flogged. Then, two days later, just as his wounds were starting to heal, they dragged him again. He also was sentenced to be pilloried four times a
1: year. For life. He had to stand in a pillory, that wooden contraption with three holes for a person's head and hands, while people jeered and threw fruits and vegetables at him four times a year, every year, for the rest of his life. He was also sentenced to life imprisonment and stripped of his Anglican priesthood.
3: So that's his punishment. But now, what happens and why he's important to us is that five years later, England went through what was called the Glorious Revolution.
0: In short, Charles II, a Protestant, died. His brother James II, a Catholic, became king. The English nobility rebelled and deposed James. Then they asked William and Mary to come over and become king and queen instead. On one condition, the duo had to agree to adopt the English Bill of Rights, which they did. One of the provisions in the English Bill of Rights, a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishments. Then,
3: the very year after this provision was adopted, Who should turn up in Parliament but Oates himself saying, Hey guys, nice job. I really didn't like the Stuart Kings either. By the way, the punishment inflicted on me was cruel and unusual. Would you please lift the judgment? And you can read the parliamentary debates. It's very clear that a majority in both houses of Parliament agreed that the punishments were cruel and unusual. What's important is is how they described the reasons that it was cruel and unusual. And they said things like, It's contrary to law and ancient practice. To punish someone this severely for perjury. It's without precedent and it will be a bad precedent for the future. And they also said it was exorbitant and barbaric and all those other things too. By the way, the Oates case also shows that, at least in England, a cruel and unusual punishment could be a disproportionate punishment, not just a barbaric method of punishment, right? Because everything done to Oates as a method right the flogging the imprisonment none of those were considered barbaric methods of punishment so if it was cruel and unusual it was simply because it was disproportionate to the crime of perjury now, and i won't bore you with all the details if you flash forward to to the to america there's also lots of evidence that this is exactly how americans thought of the issue as well
1: an interesting story no doubt but the prevailing standard for cruel and unusual at the supreme court continues to be the evolving standards of decency test articulated by chief justice warren Which pretty much writes the word unusual out of the Constitution.
0: So, how has the court applied that standard to capital punishment? In 1972, the court deemed capital punishment unconstitutional, but just four years later, it would reverse course.
1: The question of whether the death penalty is unconstitutional was first before the court in Furman versus Georgia, a set of three consolidated cases involving three separate defendants. The details of the defendant's crimes are grisly. One defendant, Furman, had been convicted of killing a man during the course of a robbery with the victim's wife and kids at home. Two other defendants were convicted of rape. And a fourth defendant, whose case was later dismissed as moot, had raped and murdered a woman who was five months pregnant. Their attorneys argued that regardless of the heinousness of these crimes, the death penalty was a cruel and unusual punishment.
0: A big part of their argument was the fact that the death penalty was being so rarely and arbitrarily applied. At the time of Furman, there hadn't been a single execution in the country since 1967, more than four years preceding oral argument. The men's attorneys argued that the executions were being so rarely imposed exactly because Americans found them so heinous, meaning they contradicted evolving standards of decency.
1: Moreover, it was often the case, Furman's attorneys argued, that there was no rhyme or reason why some people were sentenced to death while others who committed the very same crime were not. Instead, whether one was put to death largely depended on arbitrary factors like race, geography, socioeconomic status, or quality of
0: counsel. After three separate oral arguments, the court issued a decision, and it was a big one. The court ruled that the death penalty, as it was currently being applied, was unconstitutional.
1: The case elicited nine separate opinions. Justices Byron White, Potter Stewart, William O. Douglas, Thurgood Marshall, and William Brennan believed the death penalty violated the Eighth Amendment, but none of them could agree why. A common concern of at least three of them, however— Justices White, Stewart, and Douglas, was the arbitrariness with which executions were being carried out. As Justice Douglas wrote under the challenge laws, quote, no standard governs the selection of the penalty. People live or die dependent on the whim of one man or of 12. As a result, it is the poor, the sick, the ignorant, the powerless,
0: and the hated who are executed. Justice Douglas quoted a warden from Sing Sing prison who found that, The defendant of wealth and position never goes to the electric chair or to the gallows. Juries do not intentionally favor the rich, but the defendant with ample means is able to have his case presented with every favorable aspect, while the poor defendant often has a lawyer assigned by the court. Sometimes such assignment is considered part of political patronage. Usually the lawyer assigned has had no experience whatever in a capital case.
1: We asked another death penalty expert about the holding of Furman.
4: I'm Mark Tushet. I'm a professor emeritus from Harvard Law School. I've written a whole bunch of books, including one on the death penalty, a couple about Justice Marshall, and most recently, a big, enormous book about the Supreme Court from 1930 to 1941.
1: Professor Tushnet clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall the year after Furman was decided. What happened in
4: Furman was that each of the justices in the majority had a slightly different theory about what was wrong with the death penalty. Justice White, justices White and Stewart said, "Look, the problem with the death penalty is that it is freakishly imposed. That there was people who were, for all practical purposes, the same in terms of the badness of their acts. One would get a death get a death sentence, the other would get a life sentence, and there was no explaining it."
0: As Justice Potter famously wrote, these death sentences are cruel and unusual in the same way that being struck by lightning is cruel and unusual. For of all the people convicted of rapes and murders in 1967 and 1968, many just as reprehensible as these, the petitioners are among a capriciously selected random handful upon whom the sentence of death has in fact been imposed. My concurring brothers have demonstrated that if any basis can be discerned for the selection of these few to be sentenced to die, it is the constitutionally impermissible basis of race but racial discrimination has not been proved and I put it to one side. I simply conclude that the 8th and 14th Amendments cannot tolerate the infliction of a sentence of death under legal systems that permit this unique penalty to be so wantonly and so freakishly imposed. Justices Brennan and Marshall would have gone further
1: and declared that the death penalty is cruel and unusual in any of its applications. Justices Berger, Blackman, Powell, and Rehnquist dissented, writing four separate dissents.
4: Chief Justice Berger is- dissenting opinion said, well, look, if the problem is this freakish application, then states can rectify the difficulty by coming up with guidelines for when you can impose the death penalty, restrict the kinds of cases that can be imposed in, narrow the categories so that only You know the worst offenders uh, are subject to the death penalty.
0: Though there was no controlling opinion, the effect of the decision in Furman was to vacate the more than 600 pending death sentences and to reduce them to life imprisonment. But states quickly mobilized to take Justice Berger's advice and pass new capital punishment statutes. In all, 35 states passed new legislation in response to Furman. And just four years later, a set of five plaintiffs from five different states challenged their state's amended laws, arguing that capital punishment is always unconstitutional.
1: That brings us to Gregg versus Georgia, a set of cases involving five men sentenced to death in five different states. According to Gregg's attorneys... Though Georgia had attempted to remedy the old statute's flaws by creating a separate sentencing stage and articulating criteria to guide sentencing decisions, discretion still permeated every aspect of the process. From the unlimited prosecutorial discretion over what to charge, to the continued discretion of juries to craft sentences, to the uncabined appellate review by the courts, to the governor's ability to grant clemency, Gregg's attorneys argued the statutes were still unconstitutionally arbitrary.
0: They also argued that capital punishment is always excessively cruel, not least because juries sometimes get it wrong. And just as in Furman, the attorneys argued that the infrequency with which capital punishment was actually being imposed showed it was a, quote, national shame. In a 7-2 decision, the court disagreed.
1: The death penalty was not a national shame, the majority said, as evidenced by the fact that 35 states had responded to Furman by reenacting capital punishment statutes. Moreover, the majority believed that the state's new measures sufficiently eliminated any arbitrariness, and the Georgia statute's many measures allowing the opportunity for mercy did not render it unconstitutionally arbitrary. Justices Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan, who had been in the majority in Furman, dissented.
0: Justice Marshall is one of the greatest civil rights attorneys of all time and hardly needs an introduction.
1: To many, including his former clerk and now Supreme Court Justice, Elena Kagan.
3: This was a man who created opportunity for so many people in this country and improved their lives. I would call him a hero. I would call him uh, the greatest lawyer of the 20th century.
0: But it's worth taking a moment to talk about his background since it informed his views on the death penalty and his dissent in Gregg. What a man. Thoroughgood Marshall, later shortened to Thurgood, was born in 1908 in Baltimore, Maryland, at a time when there was a lynching in America every fourth day of the year. The first African-American Solicitor General and the first African-American Supreme Court Justice, Marshall learned to argue at an early age. His father would watch local trials and come home and debate the merits of them at the dinner table with Thurgood. Marshall
1: once said that his father, William, molded him into a lawyer. His father not only taught him how to argue, he taught him how to be steadfast in his views. William gave Thurgood permission to fight anyone who called him a racial slur, a prerogative young Thurgood once exercised after getting
0: into a tussle on a crowded bus. From a young age, Thurgood was a boisterous, talkative man, a bon vivant, and a master storyteller, said Professor Tushnet.
4: Well, he was, as you put it, a, a big personality. He's a big man. He's a very large uh, and, and in his younger days, extremely handsome man and very charismatic. He was able to talk with everybody, really anybody from the home, what we would now call homeless people on the streets of Harlem to U.S. senators and foreign dignitaries and was able to converse with them with ease.
1: Apparently, this big personality tended to get him in trouble. His school teacher used to send misbehaving kids out of the classroom and force them to memorize a part of the Constitution. By the end of high school, Marshall had the opportunity to memorize it all, which he said was one of his greatest high school achievements.
0: Marshall graduated from Lincoln University, a historically black college in Pennsylvania. And after being denied entry to the University of Maryland Law School because of his race, he attended Howard University Law School in Washington, D.C., It was here that he met his mentor, Charles Houston. After graduating top of his class, Marshall would eventually join Houston litigating at the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP.
1: It was there that with Houston, Marshall developed an incremental approach to toppling legal segregation. The pair sought to overturn the separate-but-equal doctrine by forcing states to actually provide separate-but-equal facilities they drove across the country documenting inferior conditions in segregated schools, knowing that states would balk at the expense of providing fully equal facilities. But the two also argued that separate was inherently unequal. Marshall must have been very pleased when he won a case requiring the University of Maryland, the very school that denied him an education, to admit a Black student, effectively ending legal segregation in Maryland. Marshall also had a lesser-known career. Here's Mark
4: of course his major uh, role was in helping structure and and produce the litigation that led to brown against board of education but he was involved particularly from 1936 to 1950 in a fair number of cases involving african american criminal defendants mostly charged with murder or rape seeking to ensure that uh, they got fair trials in the segregated South, and he actually regarded himself as at least as much a trial lawyer, mostly a criminal defense trial lawyer, as an appellate advocate, although he was a great appellate advocate.
0: While at the NAACP, Marshall would drive across the country with Houston, Eating together in their car because they weren't allowed into restaurants, staying at safe houses, never driving at night, and sometimes commuting 50 miles each day to the courthouse for trial rather than staying in the local town that was hostile to them. This took an immense amount of bravery. It was a time when lynchings were not uncommon.
1: Marshall even once narrowly escaped his own lynching after being taken into custody on false charges of drinking and driving. The officer said he was taking Marshall to face a judge, but the car veered off the main road towards a river where an angry mob waited. He was only saved because another NAACP lawyer and two others followed
0: him and persuaded the officer to release him. Even after these harrowing experiences, Marshall continued his legal crusade. To give you an idea of some of his cases as a criminal defense attorney.
4: One was when he was either a law student or just after he graduated, his mentor, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, was the defense attorney for somebody charged with either rape or murder in a suburban Virginia county. And they drove out every day and back to do the defense. And it was clear to Marshall that what had happened was that, that the African American defendant had had an affair with this white woman who then to preserve as they would put it then her reputation accused the the chauffeur I think it was of raping her and that was a capital uh, crime in Virginia at the time so they went out and conducted the defense and Marshall regarded it as they, although he was sure that defendant it was a consensual affair regarded it as a victory that they avoided the death penalty for this uh, guy. Um, I think he got a life sentence. You know, his experience was of people either unfairly accused of the underlying crime, or unfairly convicted, even if they did unfairly convicted of a capital offense, receiving a capital uh, a verdict when when they, in, in his view, shouldn't have.
0: In Watts versus Indiana, Marshall represented a man who confessed after six days of nearly continuous interrogation, no sleep, no counsel, no hearing, and no notice of his constitutional rights. The Supreme Court sided with Marshall, ruling that the state had violated the 14th Amendment. And in Patton
1: versus Mississippi, Marshall persuaded the Supreme Court that the local practice of excluding blacks from juries where 35% of the population was black constituted systematic purposeful discrimination that violated the 14th Amendment. Here's more from Mark.
4: Let me recount one of the stories he told, because it was also part of his mindset about what the criminal process for Black defendants was in the South. And that's, again, what shaped his experience. Whether this story is true or not doesn't really matter. It's a good story. So the story was, they were he was in some Southern courtroom and they conducted the trial and it was over, the jury was instructed and went out, you know, retired to deliberate. And it was like around lunchtime. And Marshall asked the court clerk whether they had time to leave uh, the courthouse to go get lunch and then come back. And the, the clerk clerk said, well, you know, the jury went out maybe five minutes ago. Uh, they'll be back in another 10 minutes. And and indeed, 10 minutes later, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. And Marshall asked the clerk, well, how did you know? You were exactly right. Because the clerk said 15 minutes uh, was what it took for the men on the jury to smoke a cigar. They were not going to talk, deliberate about the case. They would just go out and you know, smoke a cigar and then come back and, and return with the conviction. So that's how he saw criminal justice for, for Black defendants.
0: A man with that kind of experience would understandably be skeptical of putting people to death under such a flawed system. And that's reflected in his opinions in Furman and Gregg. In Furman, Justice Marshall had concluded that the death penalty
1: was unconstitutional in part because a fully informed public would reject the death penalty as morally unacceptable. However, after Furman, 35 states raced to reenact death penalty statutes. Here's Marshall grappling with that contradiction when reading his dissent from the bench and Greg.
2: I would be less than candid if I did not acknowledge that these developments have a significant bearing on a realistic assessment of the moral acceptability of the death penalty to the American people. But if the constitutionality of the death penalty Turns as I have urged on the opinion of an informed citizenry, then even the enactment of new death statutes cannot in of themselves be viewed as conclusive. In Furman, I observed that the American people are largely unaware of the information critical to a judgment on the morality of the death penalty. And they have concluded that if they were better informed, they would consider it shocking, unjust, and unacceptable.
0: Moreover, Even if an informed public approved of the death penalty, Justice Marshall believed the death penalty was unconstitutional because it is excessive. After surveying various studies, Marshall concluded that life imprisonment is an equally effective deterrent to crime.
2: It is generally agreed between the retentionists and the abolitionists that the data which now exists shows no correlation between the existence of capital punishment and lower rates of capital crime.
1: Last, Justice Marshall addressed the majority's argument that the death penalty was not excessive because it served the purpose of retribution. What was Marshall's response?
2: There is no evidence whatsoever that utilization of imprisonment rather than death encourages private blood feuds and other disorders. It simply defies belief to suggest that the death penalty is necessary to prevent the American people from taking the law into their own hands. In a related vein, it may be suggested that the expression of moral outrage through the imposition of the death penalty serves to reinforce basic moral values. That it announces in the strongest possible way that murder is wrong and therefore to be avoided. Well, this contention, like the previous one, provides no support for the death penalty. It is inconceivable. Then any individual concerned about conforming his conduct to what society says is right would fail to realize that murder is wrong if the death penalty was simply real, true life imprisonment.
0: And while the majority had suggested that the death penalty could be justified purely for retributive purposes, that is, because it was supposedly fair or morally good to take the life of someone who had taken someone else's life, Justice Marshall said...
2: It's a taking of life because the wrongdoer deserves it, surely must fall for such a punishment as, at its very basis, the total denial of the wrongdoer's dignity and worth.
1: Justice Marshall concluded.
2: The death penalty, unnecessary to promote the goal of deterrence, or to further any legitimate notion of retribution, is an excessive penalty forbidden by the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments, and I therefore respectfully dissent.
1: John mentioned in our interview that his own opinion of the death penalty, as a policy matter, not a constitutional one, had been influenced by his own personal experience. Because as he had learned...
3: We convict innocent people. There's there's no way to avoid convicting innocent people. And I'll give you one example. I, I, was, I was privileged to be a federal prosecutor where you have low caseloads, you have excellent resources. And I, in my first three months on the job, charged an innocent man... With bank robbery. Now he wasn't totally innocent. He had attempted robbing another bank, but he looked just like a person who had done a very violent robbery of a nearby bank two weeks before. I mean, just he looked identical, but he didn't do it. As it turns out, someone else who just looked just like him had done it. We only figured that out because of two reasons. One, the the defense attorney on the case was very very diligent, and she saw in the newspaper that that someone had been arrested shortly after, like. Our case came into being uh, for robbing another bank in the area, and she asked me to have the FBI agent um, look into it to see if it could possibly be the same guy. And I can tell you, the agent did not want to do this because he was busy. He had other cases. He had already closed this case. The agent went, finally, after some urging, he went to the prison where the new guy was being held, and he was blown away because it was a look-alike. It was like the identical twin of our defendant. And he came back and told me that we were able to also expedite some DNA testing, which which showed that our guy was uh, was not the uh, the offender. But I can tell you that had that not happened, had he not been lucky enough to be in prison at the time, the other guy robbed the bank again. Not only could I have convicted him at trial, I probably could have forced him to plead guilty because I had so much punishment at my disposal. That is, I could have put him away for so many years that I could have made him take a plea deal if I so chose, right? And so this is, and this is, again, in the federal system where you have a low caseload and you've got a lot of resources. So imagine the various state systems where everyone is overloaded. The police are overloaded. The prosecutors are overloaded. The defense lawyers are overloaded. So nobody has time to look very deeply into most cases. It's inevitable.
1: Like John, Justice Marshall had experienced the criminal justice system in ways that the public had not. And so, while in hindsight his dismissal of public opinion sounds out of touch, in reality, he was one of the people best able to make an accurate assessment of the system. Indeed, he was, and still is, the only justice to have represented a person in a capital case.
0: Greg, the death penalty has been considerably narrowed. The court has imposed limits on the death penalty for people with intellectual disabilities, minors, and people who commit crimes that do not result in death. Still, it persists, and in many ways, it continues to be as arbitrary as a lightning strike. Justice Marshall
1: took the long view on capital punishment, writing an opinion articulating his belief that the death penalty is unconstitutional in each one of the more than 50 death penalty cases that came before the court after Greg until
0: his retirement in 1991. In Godfrey versus Georgia, Justice Marshall wrote, I remain hopeful that even if the court is unwilling to accept the view that the death penalty is so barbaric that it is in all circumstances cruel and unusual punishment, it may eventually conclude that the effort to eliminate arbitrariness and the infliction of that ultimate sanction is so plainly doomed to failure that it and the death penalty must be abandoned altogether. In Justice Marshall's experience, Cabining the arbitrariness inherent in the machinery of death would be like catching lightning in a bottle, a nearly impossible and futile task. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to at pacificlegal.org And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell
1: your friends to check out DIST.
0: Mm. Let's get ready to rumble.
1: Oh, I forgot to wear my y'alls t-shirt. The Florence y'alls.
0: Did I tell you about this? Blink stairs.
1: There's a minor league baseball team in Northern Kentucky that's in Florence. And their mascot is a water tower. There's this big water tower there. It's like a landmark in the area. And at some point, I don't know, maybe the 80s or early 90s, they wrote on it, Florence mall because it was right by the mall. And apparently people had a problem with this and the town like did a cheapo fix and just painted over the mall part. So it says y'all. So it's Florence y'all and their minor league team is now the Florence y'alls and their mascot is the water tower. Anyway, I got a t-shirt. My husband ordered one for me Wait, when why we were in Chicago th- last week? I came home and I was like,
0: "Oh my gosh, look at this in
1: the mail. What does this have yells? to do with
0: where you you wanted to wear it?" Today? Y'all ready for this? I'm oh, sorry, I just there it I, is. There's yeah, sorry, that was really long winded. The payoff. Y'all ready for this?